Started, I will point to one thing since you you can see and I know sometimes you've shut off the visual which is fine I can do it too it's up to you how you want to do it but this framed thing up here that I'm pointing to right those are four handwritten lyrics from Elliot Smith literally in his script uh, and if you flip them over there are lyrics on the other side too one of them is actually typewritten and you can see him like crossing things out and rewriting them they were in the bottom of the guitar case that I bought from his ex-girlfriend, J.J. Gonson. And the guitars that I have, we can talk about this or not, it's up to you, but yeah. one of them is the acoustic that he used on Roman Candle. The whole album was recorded on a, on a four track, basically, in his basement with this almost toy guitar. And at the bottom of the case, I don't think we knew they were there, are these lyrics. Oh, wow, so you got it and you didn't know, it, it like wasn't one of the selling points or anything, it was just the guitar and then you found these, wow, that's something. Been there. I mean, I've since bought other lyrics of his that were a standalone selling point. And I have one of his Heat Miser guitars too, which I'm pretty sure is relevant to this conversation because it was used on the last Heat Miser album, which was a crossover with either or. But uh, yeah, that, that's the funny side product of all that is those lyrics sat in the bottom of a guitar case until JJ sold it to me. Wow. Well, I will say that's good. That's that's good. That shows that you made the right choice for the album that we're going to talk about. Well, let's get let's get into it. I'll introduce you and then we'll uh, just start the whole episode. Look out! The lever! Get away from that lever! You'll blow us all to atoms! Welcome, everyone. This is another episode of That Record Got Me. Hi, I'm your host, Rob Elba. It is wonderful having you all here with me today. My guest is a third time uh, coming back to the show. Always a great guest, a uh, great guy. You know, Corey, it's like I feel like I have these people that I've that I've talked to, I've had on the show, and I feel like we're friends and I know each other, but we've, we haven't gotten to meet in person yet. I'm sure it'll happen one of these days. It will happen. Yeah, fix that. <laughs> but uh, Corey uh, was a music journalist for a long time, for like over two decades, right? Yeah. With bylines and publications from Rolling Stone to Pace Magazine to No Depression and GQ. Corey, I'm going to be totally honest. I have no idea what you're even doing now. I don't know where you're living now. I know Corey's got a lot going on, but I don't even know. All I know is you're a really big fan of music. You're a really big music fan, right? Thank you. Yes, I am. And you know, Rob, I feel like I'm going to be doing your listeners a public service by asking you this question. The disembodied film dialogue at the beginning of your show, I'm dying to know what that is. I've heard it like a hundred times and I'm like, what? what is that dialogue? I've had friends ask me, what is that dialogue? And I can't explain it to them. Oh, it's from the uh, Bride of Frankenstein, the original uh, Bride, of Frank uh, Bride of Frankenstein movie. Okay, well, there you go. This is a good <laughs> bit of trivia for us to get out of the way right up front about you, Rob, as opposed to me. But yes, a big, big fan of music. And obviously, we're going to be talking about an artist who I knew when he was alive. It's been uh, 20 years uh, this year since he passed. But uh, yeah, somebody that I actually feel like I have for the first time on your show, like 
a personal connection to in some way, shape or form. Yeah. And I will say, Corey, I mean, I've had guests go through, you know, change their mind in episodes. I haven't never had anyone do go to, through as many <laughs> twists and turns until you finally landed on this, which is great, which is fine. It's it's no big deal because I don't really start listening or doing the thing till about a week before anyway. But Corey did take a journey but yeah i agree i i think you came on a especially for you for a great choice so what are we talking about so we're going to talk about uh, elliot smith's 1997 album either or and to your point rob it felt like I, the journey that you and i've been on it felt like there was a little loss involved in it because we were talking about dusty trails and of course the one of the two people that made that was Viv trimble from luscious jackson who passed this past year right, uh, right. we were talking about they lost a de la soul album and of course you know true boy the dove uh dave uh from from that group had passed in the past year and television now at the time you and i were talking about marquee moon which by the way still hasn't been on your show has not i know <laughs> unbelievable right uh, five years oh my god it's a freaking crime but you know this year obviously tom tom verlaine passed too and so it just yep. feels like there's there's loss in the wake here and with elliot um you know, obviously it's a 20 year anniversary of his passing. So there's and, and loss that touched me, actually, because I, I knew him a little bit while he was alive. So, yeah, we, we took a bit of a, a windy path to get to this record for sure. Yeah. And, and I'm, you know, that's what are you going to do? That's especially as we all get older, the people, you know, the, a lot of the music we grew up with and listen to, they're, they're, those people are getting older and they'll pass. But, you know, someone like Elliot Smith obviously passed way too soon. But I'm, I'm glad also that we're not, and I'm, I'm sure you agree that we're not going to dwell on our folks. Sometimes an artist, when they, when they go, you know, soon and it's through, you know, a bad circumstance and everything, that kind of like overshadows everything in their music. But it really, it shouldn't with someone like Elliot Smith because you just listened to this album that we're going to talk about now either or and and that's all you need to focus on if, if he had just been an artist that just put out that one album it would still be an unbelievably great record and he was an unbelievably great songwriter so really that's what you could focus on still right no completely I mean it, it feels like if you were talking about Joy Division or if you're talking about Nick Drake or you know you, you can go down the list of, of artists where right. you could get derailed you know uh First of all, they weren't alive long enough to create a really long and, and deep body of work. Uh, you can get distracted by sort of the tabloid aspects of their passing or right. you know whatever the circumstances may have been. And in Elliot's case, it's still pretty fuzzy, I think, or at least the police have sort of made it uh, a fuzzy end. But uh, I'm, I'm happy uh, in this instance to spend the, the vast majority of the time talking about the actual music and maybe some of the circumstances uh, around it. He and I were both living in Portland at the same time time that the album was created and it seems like there's a pretty strong venn diagram or overlap of social circles that we were both in where not only did we know each other a little bit but we knew one another's people even better uh and and it's just a fun thing to kind of weave into the conversation i think right so all right so the 90s in portland you were in portland so i'm assuming elliot was just like one of these guys like every every town the thing is every town you're in has these these people that are just like these really great singer songwriters that go that play the clubs and everything and people know them so elliot was for a while was this guy like uh, one of those guys right well, he was, but even before that, it's probably maybe I, if you will forgive me for it, I can set the scene a little bit in terms of just like sort of where this thing came from. Yeah, let's we got do it. there. So even before he was one of those guys or the guy in Portland, really like our civic treasure, he was a member of Heat Miser. 
so Heat Miser, a, uh, a four-piece band, and you know he had had a history of bands. Uh, you know, he he grew up in Texas. Uh, he moved to Portland, Oregon when he was in high school. Uh, I think he had either been kicked out of the house that he was living in in Dallas, or he had just opted to leave because of abuse and some other things that that we'll get into when we get into uh, the songs. But he was living with his his father in Portland and attending Lincoln High School, and so he had met. The drummer from Heatmiser, a guy named Tony Lash, uh, through the high school band, uh, and so that was sort of his beginnings were these pickup bands in Portland. Then he went off uh, to Hampshire College in Massachusetts, where he met Neil Gust, who uh, was a classmate of his at college, but also became his co-writer and fellow guitarist in Heatmiser. So before we knew him, you know, as Elliot Smith, we knew him as the shouty singer guitarist in Heat Miser, who were coming up at the same time as Pond, Hazel, Everclear, Dandy Warhols. There was sort of this uh, this list of bands that were, you know, in the clubs. And so it was really through his association with Heat Miser, where we had all been like, that guy who is just the kick-ass guitar player in this band, he's doing solo shows that sound, I mean, Heat Miser sounded like Fugazi. You could tell that they were oh, definitely okay, a band okay. that listening to Fugazi. They, they had a very strong resemblance to that. And Elliot has been quoted as saying, you know, when you grow up in a house where people are yelling and shouting at one another all the time, being in a band where you're yelling and shouting all the time, just to be heard over the din of the music is traumatizing. Like that's not the ideal thing. So when we saw him doing his solo singer songwriter thing, and I'm pretty sure Rob, that I was at one of his first solo gigs ever, this little tiny place called Umbra Penumbra. Charlie got a pen in his head, a rubber loop, says I'm the head you really want. So just act natural. Which actually, a live disc of that show is now the second disc on, I think, his uh, Elliot Smith uh, album, the second, uh, the self-titled solo album. Uh, when it was re-released, it was re-released with a live disc, which included live at Umbra Penumbra. So that very first show was like me and 20 other people sitting on the floor of this kind of shitty art space, listening to this guy with the toy guitar Right. that I was describing to you off there before we got on here. And literally it's, it's, it's a sub, it's like a three quarter scale guitar with a little pickup, a little lipstick pickup that he would jam in there and, you know, go through a list of like 10 to 12 songs. So that's how we sort of figured out that like, Oh wait, this guy has something else he's trying to do. That's nothing like heat miser at all. Wow. Okay. So he totally, so he changed his delivery. He was a shouter. Cause when you said that, like he was a shouter, you know, uh, you know, yelling over the din of a band, which I'm very familiar with. And I know that's something you do because he just did a total about face, I guess, when he was uh, played solo, because he just, the way uh, his uh, delivery, it's, almost like a whisper, but it's a whisper that yeah. that's very close. And that just makes you really listen and pay attention to everything that's going on because it's so, it's so quiet, but it's so, it's also so visceral. And so in your face. No, it's, it's really intimate, right? I mean, yeah, and we'll, we'll talk about it with this, with this record, but I mean, 
the thing about either or and what's so attractive or sort of magnetic about it all these years later is the combination of beautiful melodies which obviously he would go on in his major label career to enhance and orchestrate and do a lot more with, coupled with really gritty lyrics, really almost angry kind of lyrics. So that that tension between the grittiness or the anger, uh, and yet, as you say, almost like a, in a whisper voice because he was four-tracking all of this stuff, right? Like this album was made for almost nothing. It was recorded in... His ex-girlfriend, Joanna Bolmay, who ended up in Stephen Malkmus's Jicks, uh, among other things. But right. it was recorded in her house. It was recorded mm-hmm. at Mary Lou Lord's house. It was recorded in the basement of Larry Crane's house before he even had Jackpot Studios. He had a thing called Laundry Rules where he was recording like verses and Stephen Malkmus in his basement. So this record was predominantly a very lo-fi four to eight track affair where those vocals sound that way because it's just Elliot recording himself basically, which he'd been doing all along since high school. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Cause it's still, it sounds so great. And also it never, I don't think I ever appreciated just what a good uh, guitar player he was too. Cause it's just like such great guitar playing on this and, and just the songwriting. It's so, he, he was really such a great songwriter because there's so much, you know, when you listen to these songs, uh, the, uh, the, the chord changes that he uses, that he writes, that he chooses is so uh, surprising in a way and different and sort of takes you on these little journeys. And it's just like really so well done, you know? Oh, it's crazy. I mean, the, the thing is, is you listen to them and you're convinced or sort of hypnotized into thinking like, well, this is almost kind of like folk music. I mean, how hard can it be? Right. I mean, you know, it's, it's one man on a guitar, but like he's playing in alternative tunings. There are a couple of these songs that are just in crazy tunings that take some real, reverse engineering to figure out and what when you've i mean you've played and sung in bands rob so you know this but i mean like when you're doing multiple things at once you're singing you're playing playing something fairly difficult you're doing them at the same time uh maybe as a singer songwriter on this record he plays rob every instrument on this album he plays drums he plays bass oh really he plays the keys he sings every note on it there's not another voice on it that isn't Elliot Smith. So oh, wow. I didn't the interesting that. thing I was wondering that. Watching him as a solo artist go from four-track stuff in his basement that literally was just voice and guitar where people would say, like, gosh, that sounds like Paul Simon, and, he, and I think Elliot would get annoyed by that. Like, it's, <laughs> right. it's nothing like Paul Simon. On to almost a band-like construction, right? Like, that's what I hear on some of the songs on Either Or, things that sound like a band, but they're not Heat Miser. And so that's where it got interesting for us because there was a point at which you could see that like things that he was writing for heat miser were really different Fugazi like compared to things he was doing for himself. Then all of a sudden you can't really, by the time Mike city sons heat misers, third record comes along, there's overlap. Everybody's cycling home. Always trying to get me alone. An easy way to lose it all. Always selling all those fears Over by the west side rails Songs that are on Mike City Sons, he's doing acoustic live during his solo show, so there's no meaningful difference anymore between Elliot the band player and Elliot the solo player, which I think caused a lot of tension within Heatmiser. So Heatmiser atomizes at the same time 
and they're on a major label. And so he is basically signed to a major label at the same time he's been putting out solo records on Kill Rockstars, so, which is a, an indie label that was based in the Northwest, uh, Slim Moon's label. And so this is the last record for Elliot where he is an indie artist because he gets signed to DreamWorks after this record and moves on. It's his last Portland record. So literally, this is the last time where he's living full-time in Portland, Oregon, before he moves to New York City. Uh, and a whole bunch of other things kind of happened for him at the same time. So you can see, we could see, Rob, like his friends could see, this guy is about to go supernova, which of course happened literally that same year because Gus Van Sant, the filmmaker, discovers him, puts four of his songs on Goodwill Hunting, which gets nominated for an Oscar. And so here's Elliot Smith in a white Versace yes, suit. I think that's yes. what it was. Like a completely like brain exploding image that made no sense to any of us who knew Elliot, you know, at all. Like I don't think he even knew who the designer Versace was. Right. And he's on the show singing kind of this completely out of place version of Miss Misery. which is a song that isn't on this record but was contemporaneously recorded and you can just see him about to go supernova and you know larry crane who was his musical partner jackpot studios in portland he writes a magazine called tape op larry has said this this may have been the worst thing that could have happened for him right because Elliot was not an artist who I think was ready for that kind of attention. Major label, right. big fan, machine attention. But that's what he got. Right. That's what happened. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's kind of, yeah, it, it's kind of apparent and obvious. Now, I just watched today. I watched his performance on the Oscars. And it's crazy. Yeah. Um, uh, Celine Dion was like right before him. Like, it was like three, you know, the three nominated songs. And, and it was Celine, and, and, and Celine Dion. And then, like you said, he comes out by himself with this in this white suit looking a little, you know, looking obviously out of place and everything. I mean, it's so great. It, it's a great per, uh, performance and everything. But yeah, it's like you, you know, you wonder, well, some people, and, and I think he even said it after that, this whole thing of him playing, you know, were all these people that weren't, aren't there to see him at all. They don't know who he is. And, you know, it's like surreal. And it's also not something, I mean, he kind of appreciated at the moment, but it's not something he really wanted to be a part of or <laughs> continue, you know, it just wasn't anything. That well, I, I, think, I, I think to take that a step further, he had told the show's producers that he wasn't interested and what they told him was well fine we'll just take miss misery and richard marks can sing it no if, if you can imagine that, if you can imagine that right so so i think in a world where he was just like well god you know i actually care about this song so okay i mean i guess you're gonna force me to go do it so we we had i'm not kidding you rob we had like viewing parties in portland friends who were watching the oscars like it was like one of us is on the moon that's basically it was like here's here's a win for indie music this this guy that we, you know, is a Portland treasure, you know, like a local kid who we we feel super emotionally attached to. He's like a secret for us. Now we have to share that secret with everyone. And you're both really proud that he's to this point and kind of worried for him. Right, like, right. how's this going to turn out for him? Because for, for people who were much closer to him than I was, they they had already seen signs that, you know, Elliot could be depressed 
you know, he could self-medicate. There were things that, that he was already having to cope with in dealing with like the prospects of like a major label, big push behind him. And uh, I think we all fretted a little that like, we don't know how this is going to go. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it's crazy because all of that you could sort of hear on this album too. It's almost like, it's like you could feel like he was on this speeding train that was no, you know, that he sort of didn't have control of. And cause it's kind of, it's almost like he's singing about everything that's all this is going to happen. And, and it's all in there, but it just makes it very uh, compelling and, you know, and in a way sad, but I don't know. We'll talk. I want to talk more about that, but let's get into it. Let's start listening. Let's get the open uh, opening song, which speed trials definitely has that lo-fi. I think this one, one for sure was recorded like on a four track right and uh a lot of them were but this one you really had that feel right from the start which is kind of jarring you know for an album to open let's listen to the uh, first song speed trials Yeah, it's crazy in a way it's so life uh, uh, lo-fi like the drums it's almost i'm not sure but it sounds like someone maybe playing the drum kit but with their hands like not using sticks he's, he's using their hands yeah you can you can hear uh, particularly with the toms they sound uh, a little echoey or they're definitely recorded in a way to give them a little more resonance here we are rob one track into the record and already uh elliot's deploying a couple of his favorite tricks one of them is he double tracks all the vocals and all the guitars. So yes, lo-fi, but it's a crazy parlor trick, Rob. You know this because like when you're recording something, what's the way that most people do this through chorus effects, right? They actually use pedals or they use digital effects to do this. No, this is Elliot recording himself once and then recording the exact same thing again on vocals and guitars. So he thickens it, but you know, he's not having to shout over the top of it to be heard so he can sing in what I think is a much more natural voice for him. But can you imagine the difficulty level of playing and singing something the exact same way twice throughout an entire record? Because that's what we're about to hear. This right. this was literally a, a trick he deployed across like every single song that's recorded on this record. Yeah, yeah, no, you're right. And that's a great point because that's why, even though it is lo-fi in a way, that's why it's still, it sounds so good. And it's so, it's so like full, even though it's sparse, but it's still full. And that uh, it makes a bit, but yeah, 
if he wasn't so talented and so good at doing that, it just could have been a train wreck. It would sound like a train wreck. It wouldn't sound good, but uh, it it works. Well, the other thing he's doing here, uh, and I think is we we can decide how much we talk about the lyrics uh, as a part of all of this. But Elliot's other thing was is to to your earlier point, there are a lot of glimpses of Elliot in these songs and in every song he ever wrote. But I think he would say, and the people around him who knew him better would say that it's probably a mistake to think of it as like diary entries. You know, they're more like snatches of things that he's observing and sort of mashing up uh, as, as an instance of something like it's easier to use an incident or to use a story to talk about difficult things, to talk about emotional upheaval or dependency or things like that than it is to just talk about dependency. And so here he's talking about, first of all, a speed trial, right? So is he talking about, uh, what a bicycle race speed trial would be. Is he talking about uh, the drug speed? Uh, there's lyrics in here about standing in place, which you could think of that as a drug reference. Like, you know, I'm, I'm addicted to something, so I'm standing in place. But what do, what do actors have to ensure that the show will go on? They have stand-ins. So standing in place is also somebody coming in and standing in place for you. Elliot loves these little word games, and they're all over this record as a way to sort of both obfuscate, I think, the facts of the matter, but also to let the listener, what, what's the term for it, Rob? Is it Rashomon effect, like one story, many views? Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, it, it's it's very easy. If you could just read through it and it's very reductive to just say, oh, well, this song's about drugs. And you could say that with almost yeah. every song in here, you could say that, but it's so reductive to say that because there's just, there's so much self-reflection and introspection going on but as you said he's doing it in a very artful way he's not doing it on the nose he's just sort of singing about you know things he observes and things in his life and yeah drugs are in there because they were part of his life as well but but it, it isn't the only thing going on no that's right it's almost like they're metaphors for dependency like dependence on people right dependence on television dependence on other things that sort of numb you to the reality that you're trying to muddle your way through or, or whatever it is I, to me a song like this it, it's a really interesting tension between like you say something really lo-fi right like at the time you would have had lou barlow from sebado i mean think of all the people who were sort of doing like very similar lo-fi bonnie prince billy a guided by voices yeah same idea and yet there's a lot of brian wilson-esque things going on here too there's a lot of technique there's a lot of just flat you said it before he was such an amazingly good guitar player and deceptively simple you know like i would defy most guitar players to sit down with this record and figure out how to play this without going to youtube or to go get like you know transcriptions or things that would show them actually how to play it yep all right, so this next one, Alameda, I'm, I'm assuming you, you must know it's a reference to a street in Portland. You must be aware of the street. I guess it's where he spent most of his adolescence, but we could talk about it, but let's, let's do a little bit of Alameda.
just goes into that bridge part just the uh you know like like i was saying before it just takes you his chord changes take you in this different direction but yeah just real quick the lyrics there think about your friends how you how you maintain all of them in a constant state of suspense for your own protection over their affection nobody broke your heart you broke your own because you can't finish what you start i mean he's some would say that's like almost self-loathing in a way but it's not i think it's just like a human very human insecurity you know someone just sort of being real human and just like this is just him you know probably he was thinking the same thing you know walking down uh, that street oh 100 i mean and you think about it right like then there's the ko punch right at the end of the song where he says, if you're alone, it must be you that wants to be a part. Yeah, it's very oh, self-skewering, right? right? Like yeah, he's, yeah. he's really, it's a critique. It's a pretty scathing one. But a lot of it, I think, is pretty self-directed. And, and you know, like as you say, I mean, you know, at, there's tons of, Val- there are Alamitas all over the place, including Alameda, California. But certainly the one he would have known best would be the Northeast Portland community known as Alameda. And uh, there are other bits of trace evidence across the record, Rob, that are very, this is, this is about as Portland a record as Elliot would make. So oh, when you right. talk to people who living in Portland or maybe they still live in Portland or they were living there at the time, they'll find all kinds of breadcrumb trail clues across the record. And this is this is certainly one of those, you know, like being in that neighborhood really late after the bars close, uh, you know, sort of walking down Alameda. Uh, it's it's a knowable commodity for people. And probably there are people who might have even seen Elliot back in those days who'd be like, yep, uh, it's, it's probably a place I saw him at like 2.45 in the morning. Right, 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 right. All right, so this next one, the first thing I thought of when I see the title, A Ballad of Big Nothing, I think because some, I see some similarities to A Big Star, to Alex Chilton and some of his songwriting, so I'm, I'm wondering if he, a ballad of, you know, the a ballad of El Agudo, if he was sort of thinking of that when he titled this. Years ago my heart was set to live Oh, I've been trying hard against unbelievable odds. But this, again, it's about, maybe about a drug addict, but maybe definitely a not-so-lovable drug addict, for sure. Um, I have a a different theory. Yeah, we'll we'll listen to it, and I'll give you my version of that theory. Oh, okay, all right, good. Let's listen to the Ballad of Big Nothing.
man. All right. So, yeah, I, I definitely want to hear your take on it. But I just I just want to go back to what you said, because it's almost like a cliche. But to say that these are a beautiful melodies saying, you know, terrible things in a way or dark things. It's like, oh, my God, it's like <laughs> such a great example of that. Yeah. Well, you know, so Bob Dylan was a huge influence for Elliot. Huge. Like over. I don't know how many shows, Rob, I've lost count between Heat Miser and solo shows that I saw him play over the years. But I definitely saw a lot of Dylan covers. Oh, I, I okay. saw when I I saw when I paint my masterpiece. I saw um, Don't Think Twice. It's all right. In fact, it's how I met Elliot for the first time. And his father, Gary, was at a gig uh, at a club called La Luna, where he was playing in the upstairs. And one of the songs he played was was this Dylan cover. <laughs> My theory is that Dylan used to use that ballad construction, ballad of a thin man, right? into the room with your pencil in your hand you see somebody naked in you you say who is that man you so what's what's he doing in ballad of a thin man he's laying waste to mr jones right like you you don't know what this is do you mr jones right and i think that's to your point about sort of like beautiful music saying terrible things that's really what's happening here is you can see that construct of the ballad of as a platform for just this super cutting and personal observations, which, you know, I think is sort of his critique of an aimless drug addict ish. Right. 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 You know, getting into the back of a car for candy from some stranger, watching the parade with pinpoint eyes full of smoldering anger. I mean, I don't know. I mean, you don't have to have a lot of imagination to have met people abusing drugs that sort of fit that general description. Right. So, and, and you know, then he gets to the end of the song and basically calls this person big nothing. So I see this as like using a Dylan kind of construction lyrically and almost using like the zombie. The of your loves, like the from the sun, and this will be our year to a long time to come. Don't let go of my hand now, the darkness has gone. This That's another thing, right? So he was a classicist. Like his other covers from this period were like Zombies, Kinks, Waterloo Sunset. Yeah, I was waiting to bring that up because isn't it the whole record has a very timeless quality because I'm listening to it and I'm thinking that could be like a zombie song or a Pretty Things, you know, or a Pretty Things song or something like that. It's a very timeless quality to a lot of this. Left Bank, you know, he, yes. he covered uh, uh, Walk Away Renee uh, several times. So so I see this as sort of a mashup between the cuttingness of Dylan lyrically and dressing it up with the kinds of pop that he was so attracted to. Uh, I don't know if it's to take away from how sharp the edges were or if it's just that sort of beautiful confusion of having two opposite things in one space and seeing where the sparks fly. Right. <laughs> no, that's good. I, I think that sounds like a spot on take uh, Take to it. That's really good. All right. So uh, between the bars, this uh, again, um, it's not, uh, you know, it, it's there. It's like, uh, it, this is like, I, to me, it's like, this is the alcohol 
literally speaking to the addict in in, in this one. I mean, uh, you know, there's, it's hard to take it any other way, but uh, still so great. Let's listen to Between the Bars. Drink up, baby, stay up all night With the things you could do You won't, but you might The potential you'll be That you'll never see The promises you'll only make Drink up with me now And forget all about The pressure of days Do what I say Make you okay and drive them away. The image is stuck in your head. People, you've been before that you don't want around anymore. They push and shove and won't bend to your will. I'll keep them still. Drink up, baby. Look at the stars. I kiss you again. This song, I keep, I keep coming back to because the lyrics, you know, like I said, to me, I feel like it's the, it's the alcohol speaking to the addict and everything. But the way, you know, yeah. you could hear, you could imagine other singers making it sound very sinister and giving like a sinister take to it. You know, drink up, baby. But him, the way he comes at it from a completely different, you know, so soft and like gentle almost. It's like, it, it's just so, uh, you know, it's just so him. So Elliot Smith. No, you're totally right. I, I think of, like, for example, would a band like Morphine have done any justice to something like this? You right. know, like I'm not, I'm not sure. Would it have been too cartoony, or would Mark Eitzel have made it, you know, like so down in the dumps that it wasn't really believable? And so I think you've touched on what most people think this song is, which is alcohol speaking to the addict. And yet, what's interesting is again, Elliot deliberately um, obfuscating the lyrics in a way that gives multiple meanings. Right. So. Waving your hands in the air, are you trying to get the bartender's attention to order another drink, or are you waving your hands in the air like you don't care? You just oh, don't right, care. Right. I mean, you know, I, I don't know. He doesn't <laughs> make that distinction for you, right? If you're looking out at a cheering audience from the stage, um, you know, typically for him it would have been in a chair. That You know, he played most of his solo shows like literally seated. You know, he would be – between the bars of a song, like even that's that the idea of between the bars, right? Are you between two bars trying to get drinks at one and then drinks at the other? Are you between the bars of a song, this bar, then that bar? Right, right. right Are you yeah. between the bars of a jail cell of your own making? I don't know. And he doesn't clarify it for you. And so, you know, when when he says people you've been before that you don't want around anymore that push uh, and shove you and won't bend to your will, I'll keep them still. Like, that's masterclass songwriting, but it's part and parcel of this thing that really leaves you to interpret it. And he's not helping you to interpret it in any way. And in fact, if anything, he's, he's leaving it to you to make up your own, to assign your own meaning to it, which I, I love that about his writing. It's just so perfect for me. Yeah. Yeah, no, it is. And it just goes, it goes to the fact that he was a very intelligent 
songwriter and very self-aware but mm. it, it, it's almost heartbreaking for that when someone could be that self-aware and you know they're so intelligent but still you know they're they're also probably not making the best choices and, and that's just the way it is you know yeah it's a very human thing right that's the that's the beautiful humanity of Elliot. it's probably why even though this record was made in the 90s at a time where you know grunge had kind of petered out and you, you had boy bands and, you know, there were, there was sort of an arm wrestling contest for sort of what was next. You had that horrible new metal nonsense like right. Limp Biscuit and crap <laughs> like that that was starting to come into the frame. But this is pretty timeless, right? Like it, to me, it's not surprising that like, you know, Phoebe Bridgers or, you know, Adrian from Big Thief or Frank Ocean or Angel Olsen or Jenny Lewis, like so many people who are huge Elliott fans, they've done covers, their own music sounds like that. I mean, that's 20 plus years later, right? right and right. so it is a little timeless. You don't get that whiff like you do with some of the grunge records or these awful new metal things or whatever of like, oh, I'm in the year two, I'm stuck in the year 2000. I'm at Woodstock watching shit burn around me. I'm stuck in that moment. Like you don't have that with this record. Right, right. That's good. And that's great. And that kind of brings us, that's a good segue. I think into the next song, uh, Pictures of Me. Because on the surface, it could you could think of it just someone that doesn't like having their pictures taken. But also, and, and this is, I'm someone that did obviously doesn't know him at all, but he, he struck me as someone who didn't want to be a pigeonholed into this, like, you know, they sort of made him like this sad sack, melancholic singer-songwriter but uh, by the media, but I'm sure, I, I just have a feeling that that's not something he was interested in at all, getting pigeonholed into something like that, that he was, you know, much, much more Definitely than, than any of that. Yeah, let's listen to a little bit of pictures of me. Start, stop, and start. Stupid acting smart. Flirting with the flicks. You say it's just for kids. You'll be the victim of your own dirty tricks. You got yourself to tease and displease. To a swinging wide, you walked into high, looking at your feet, failures complete. great such a great song and really at the beginning of it that first verse is you could hear exactly what you were talking about because you could hear that he was d doubling his voice doubling the guitar but doing it so great it's like so i don't know if people can appreciate how hard that is to do and just how obviously it's just something that came natural to him to do it and it just makes it sound so much better and so great well and again the circumstances under which it was done too right like this is this is pretty lo-fi recording and yet He's building these layers as though he's a band. So it starts with just guitar and keys. 
Then the drums and the bass come in. Then you hear a 12-string guitar, so he's adding overdubs over the top of that. Uh, his vocals are tripled up. Uh, at one point, he's harmonizing with himself. So this is the first collaboration between Elliot and Larry Crane, uh, the first time that they had ever collaborated. I think uh, Elliot's, the, the story is that Elliot's equipment had broken down. And so he met Larry at a party in Portland. And uh, Larry was, at the time, a sort of a um, growing in reputation producer, uh, he had his own, he had a tape op magazine thing that he had started up. He'd played in some local bands and the way that Larry describes it is, is that, you know, he was like, well, help me do some vocals. And Larry was charging 10 bucks an hour at that point to do vocals at his little, you know, laundry rules studio, his right. downstairs basement. So it took them three, three hours, 30 bucks to record pictures of me. And during the recording, Larry kind of stops and he looks at Elliot and he's like, oh, you like the zombies, don't you? <laughs> like, it was immediately obvious to Larry, like, that's the direction of travel here. And um, so it's interesting because to me, this song really speaks to Elliot being very self-aware that, like, chasing fame is a bad thing and will bring you to your knees. And, and so this opposite, uh, this tension of opposite impulses I want to make music. I want as many people as possible to hear it. I, I want to participate in a way that will give people a chance to sort of, you know, hear and see what I'm up to, knowing full well that the industry will bring you to your knees. That's pictures of me, right? Like, you know, he, he literally can't stand the idea of probably some publicist at a New York firm, you know, lobbing out dozens and dozens of photos and lyrics and other things to journalists to write about him. At one point, he told Crane, I want to write songs and I want to record. The interviews and the tours are the things that I have to do in order to do the first two, which is a very Brian Wilson construct, right? Like, I'll, I'll only do these things because they give me the chance to write and record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I don't think uh, I think I don't, I don't think uh, people appreciate enough how many you know sensitive singer songwriters it, that is actually the case. I mean, not everyone could be like Springsteen, like Bruce Springsteen, where it gets discovered and he could hop on the machine and go all the way. But not everyone's built like that. No, for sure. Well, I mean, look, even Rob, the fact that this record is called Either Or, right? I mean, Either Or is a book by Soren Kierkegaard. <laughs> okay, not like the most upbeat of philosophers right. in the world and you know Elliot studied philosophy when he was at Hampshire and when I think about the two primary themes on this record right one is the inherent dangers of wanting success in the music industry knowing that the dangers of fame are very present right and what they bring you and then the second is that you know drugs and alcohol and addiction are kind of equal to the other things that we choose in our lives, relationships, TV, et cetera, to numb the pain of existence, which is exactly what Kierkegaard was writing about, right. sort of like tensions in life. So there's a lot of thoughtfulness going on beneath the surface of what you might just see as like some pop songs, you know, or things that want to be pop songs. There's a lot percolating there. Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. All right. So this next one, no name number five, I, I, I want to hear your take on it, but this is one, one of the ones on the record that I feel like the, the chord progression feels as sad as the lyrics, you know, usually there's a, like a duality going, but on this one, I feel like it sort of matches up together. <laughs> yeah. uh, no name number five.
That couplet right there, uh, don't get upset about it, uh, not anymore. There's nothing wrong that wasn't wrong before. Well, and there's a line at the end of this that hopefully you'll play under us as we're talking, uh, where he says, uh, I got a broken heart with your name on my cast. Yes, yes. I, like, <laughs> how, how is it any better as a songwriter than that, right? I mean, every kid has broken an arm or a leg or whatever, and you have friends sign your cast, and yet there is this sense of again you know him warning himself so th- there are a couple of interesting things about this song you mentioned it right so you don't have the happy clappy pop trappings going on behind this you actually have a song that's written in double drop c so at the, at the time that that's a specific guitar tuning right so at the time this was recorded a lot of the grunge bands were doing like double drop d like Soundgarden, nirvana were all dry they were writing these very low end right songs in double drop d so here you have Elliot kind of probably skewering the grunge crowd a little by double drop C, <laughs> a totally obscure tuning, right? Right. Uh, he had one song from the previous album called Satellite that was written in the same tuning. Um, and then you have the character that he's talking about in the song kind of turning away from fame uh, and everybody that is associated with fame, right? Where he's alone at last. That's that's sort of the idealized state. Like I pursued it. It was certainly a failure. Now I'm alone at last. And so to your point, you really have both like the words and the song kind of matching in mood, maybe for the first time on the record. And it's interesting because, you know, it's no name number five. He had six songs, one more beyond this called No Name. Oh, really? Different. Yeah, different lyrical themes. Yeah, you can go back to the first record. There were multiple no-name songs in a single that came out after this called No Name Number Six, which I think is a really interesting psychological thing to ponder. Like, as a writer, like, how do you have six songs called No Name attached to it? We we can all give this song a name alone at last. That seems like an obvious thing, but for whatever reason, he chose not to do that, which is, again, I think part of his thing of, like, you get to decide – what the song is about, you get to assign at a meeting. I know what I meant. You do you. Right, right. <laughs> That's good. That's great. All right. So this next one, Rose Parade. At first, it's it, it's funny because it kind of takes you on a journey. Because at first, it feels like just like a really like a pretty slice of life, like hometown uh, parade song. But then it gets yeah. you know it's got some dark undertones, and then it gets darker as it goes along. Yes. 
<laughs> for, for sure. sure. It's it's a it's a, it's one of those things where again he's using a a slice of life or an instance as an allegory for something much broader than that. But it is tempting, especially given his Portland provenance, to just be like, oh, this is literally like a photograph. It's a Polaroid taken at the Rose Parade, Portland's annual Rose Parade. Right. But it's not. And he actually even talked about that in later interviews. Right, right, right. He said, no, it's not specifically about that. It's more a little right. more broad about the whole idea. But uh, it's still, it's great. Let's listen to Rose Parade. So yeah, real slice of life, but I didn't get to the last verse, but man, that final verse, the cynicism just comes right up to, to the forefront. Yeah. I mean, again, to me, this is just like pure music industry piss take, right? Where yes. he's really, he's looking down the barrel at what's coming and he can fully see that like danger awaits, right? So there's individual lines, right? Like throwing out candy that looks like money, a metaphor for a gesture that seems generous on the surface, but it's actually pretty meaningless. You're just throwing out candy money, right? right? You know, not, not much to gain there. Uh, a dog in a choke chain collar. There's so much you can read into that, right? right? Including that, like, you know, the dog gets stepped on during the parade, can't get very far on its own. You know, singing along to some half-hearted victory song would be something that's like the conflict you feel when you embrace fame and money, but you know full well, you know, sort of the downside that kind of comes along with that. And then, of course, where he says, you say it's a sight that's well worth seeing. It's just that everyone's interest is stronger than mine. To me, that is the first place where I hear him singing something that Kurt Cobain also might have sung, right? Where you can just see the full Venn diagram of these two guys kind of colliding with one another, even years apart from Kurt's passing. I gather that they... I gather they knew one another, uh, maybe not that well, but I mean, you know, Kurt dated Mary Lou Lord. Elliot wrote a song for Mary Lou Lord in the same uh, time frame. I figured you out. I've seen you watching her every time she crosses the That he recorded for this record, it ultimately didn't make it on, and it made it on Mary Lou's record. And Mary Lou gave Kurt 
an acoustic guitar, a Martin, that Elliot ended up with at some point. And now it's, I don't know, enshrined in some museum in Chicago. But when I, I, I think a lot about the way that Kurt used to play with those sort of images of like, I know fame is bad. I know what's coming is bad. I'm still, it's like a moth to a flame. And I hear Elliot doing some of the same things, maybe not consciously in any way. Just, right. you know, that I, I see this dangers. Right. All right. So uh, the next one, Punch and Judy, I'm kind of, I'm a little stumped on this one. I, I'm really curious to hear your take on it. If there's uh, sort of what there is to take out of the song, uh, Punch and Judy. But uh, it's interesting. But let's listen to it first. Punch and Judy. Wallflower punch talks to Judy in a crowd of he says there can't you ever treat anyone nice i think i'm gonna make the same mistake twice what's he what's he saying there like what's going on here well here's here's my theory so this is a this is an odd one but like punch and judy was a puppet show right like right right. not even a very clever puppet show like an old-timey puppet show and you probably remember that like most of it was basically like gratuitous violence passing itself off as something funny, right? It like was, they would always yeah, the, get in a fight. It's terrible. It's a terrible thing for kids to see. <laughs> it is terrible, and yet it was marketed right at them, which is sort of ironic. But what I gather Elliot is do, is doing here is that he's using this trope to kind of talk about a, a like he's painting the picture of a relationship that probably is violent but ultimately didn't mean enough to any of the participants to continue, you know? And so he's just using the metaphor of punch and Judy to kind of say like, you know, these people are a joke. We see them out and they're sort of like fighting with one another. Right, or maybe they're right. actually being violent with one another. It just, it all seems so pointless and, and useless. And and the thing that um, I'm always surprised to hear it at this point in the running order, Rob, if I'm honest, like, so there's an album that um, came out in 2007 called new moon and new moon's a double record. Uh, an Elliot double record is a posthumous release came out after he passed it was supposed to be the 10 year anniversary re-release of either or that's what Larry Crane, Larry Crane at that point had become the archivist for Elliot's music. The family had appointed him uh, to run the archives. And as he was digging through outtakes and whatnot, he decided like there's too many high quality outtakes from the Elliot Smith album in 1995. And then, the either or album in 1997, we should just release this double record. And so when I hear punch and Judy, I always go to new moon and I'm like, 
oh gosh, you know, go by or going nowhere or new disaster might have fit like so much more nicely in that spot. Like, I don't hate this song. It's just to me, there are other things that were contemporaneous that might have been a better fit. Yeah, it is kind of an outlier to the album. I feel in a way it is. But this next one. Angeles, this this again, uh, it's got the theme, which it, it seems so crazy to me because uh, this was all written before everything happened with Gus Van Zandt and the Oscars appearance and everything. But it's almost like he sort of keeps musing about these this future that he kind of knows is looming and coming. And you could tell he's already not down with it, but it, it it's kind of crazy in a way. I guess it's almost like he saw it all coming. It's super prescient. I mean, you know, Angelus, the character is really just a stand-in for the Hollywood version of the entertainment industry or the music industry. And so it's like you're standing on the train tracks with the lights bearing down on you, knowing you're about to get hit and you can't move. That that's to me what this song is. Yep. All right. Let's let's do a little bit of Angelus. So this is the one song where I'm listening to him, his playing and his finger picking at the beginning. And it's just so good. I mean, it, it, it's just amazing. Oh I, I just didn't, I had no idea he was so good. It's unbelievable. I mean, I, I, this takes me to a really specific memory. So this, this place I was telling you about before, La Luna, which is the infamous site much uh, at, a, at a different time of the replacements playing a show in Portland where they were so drunk along with the young fresh fellows that they threw a couch out of the upstairs bar onto oh, right. the uh, oh, okay. tried to play the show, failed miserably, played a bunch of shitty uh, covers, etc. When you look at the Don't Tell a Soul album on the in-group, it says, Sorry, Portland. That's why. <laughs> it was from playing at this venue when they, when they couldn't play. Um, so I remember Elliot playing at La Luna this song and – somebody in the audience saying like, we can't see you. And Elliot says to the audience, well, if you all sat down, you could see me a thousand people, which is what that upstairs would hold sat down all at once. I've never seen any stock still, not a single noise in the crowd to this song, listening to him with that very intricate kind of Bob Dylan. Don't think twice. It's all right. Finger picking. Right. I'd never seen anything like that before. An audience, an artist who could literally say in a very quiet tone of voice, well, if you all sat down, you could see me. 
and everybody sits down. Wow. It's just unbelievable. It, it really specific memory. I mean, look, this is another industry takedown. This is another yes. instance of him calling out the industry by name. You know, so glad to meet you, Angelus. I mean, I, I don't know that there's ever been a less uh, authentically meant line in a song ever. He's not glad to meet anybody here, right? right? I mean, you know, <laughs> you know, I do remember him telling an interviewer at one point, like, you know, I'm the wrong kind of person to be really big and famous. I don't really care if I fit into anything or if there's anything to fit into. And to me, this song sort of embodies that ethos, right? Like he's doing what he's going to do no matter what. And it's up to the industry to kind of decide, do you want to make it a big thing? Do you want to blow it up? Like how how much do you want to promote this? But a lot of us who who knew him or friends of his that were much better friends than than I was, I think we're all genuinely worried. And again, the, the Gus Van Sant thing we've already talked about, but like, you know, you could just see the train coming. And I think he was very conflicted about it. And a song like this, even if it's not explicitly about him per se, gives you a pretty good sense of the trepidation he must have felt about what it was going to be like, you know, to, to sign over the rights to all this stuff for the money and the fame and uh, the rest of it when he, he knew what the downside might be. Right, 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 right. Wow. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's funny. Something I, I didn't bring up, I, I wanted to bring up to you real quick when, when we had been talking about doing it, when you finally picked this album said we do Elliot Smith, we were obviously emailing back and forth and, you know, as, as uh, things happen, I started getting things, uh, you know, alerts about Elliot Smith and I got an alert like posts on this Reddit, like this Elliot Smith Reddit site that I, you know, <laughs> So I went to it and I just happened to go to it and it, it was interesting. It was a couple days earlier uh, than now and someone had posted how, you know, some people think of this as being a depressing record, sad, but he doesn't see it that way at all. He, he loves to listen to it because it just makes him happy listening to it and it's happy music. And I thought that that was kind of nice, you know, to see that some of the, and then a lot of people chimed in and said, yeah, I'm the same way. You know, it, it kind of, you know, I know some people it helps them through a dark time, whatever, but I just listen to it because I just love the uh, music and I love listening to it. So that was kind of a nice take to it all. Yeah. I mean, I, he, uh, I was watching an interview too, where he was kind of talking about the idea that I, I think he was using Elvis Costello records to talk about this, but he's like, it helped me feel less like a freak to hear somebody singing about or writing about experiences that I know were difficult for them. Right, you know, right. that, that I felt like in some way I could relate to it. So now it doesn't make me sorrowful to hear it. It just, you know, it makes me feel like I can confront that or that there's somebody else out there that can identify with what it is that either I was writing about or that, that he or she were writing about. Yeah. Yeah. And that's great. So we get Cupid's trick. I'm thinking just, you, you would probably have more, uh, you know, no more of this than me, but I'm thinking he couldn't have been an easy a boyfriend to have <laughs> at times. <laughs> and I'm, I or an that. easy friend. Yeah, or yeah. An easy friend, which he, even which he even, to have. Yeah, I'm sure he would be the the first to admit that as well. But um, yeah, and I see that a little in this song. Let's listen to a little bit of Cupid's trick. She's shaking down, I'm absent, and I'm from shock, reaching around for the hands of the clock. Sugar light, 
this one this is a interesting one too in relation to the rest of the record i think well it's it's an outlier i don't remember i mean so first of all rob the lyrics are left off the record it's the one song where if you have the physical vinyl or you have the cd booklet in your hand there's no lyrics to be found oh you know what that makes sense because i just i read something where he sort of said that he kind of wrote it he thought he was a little you know he was on something he wrote it and he wasn't that crazy about his own lyrics so maybe that's why he, he, it was left off on purpose well i mean look this is a guy who like would never be caught in public or in a photo shoot without a shirt on right like the the intimacy of elliot the boyfriend as you were talking about before like right. first of all it couldn't have been easy and second of all i don't think he was that easy with it himself to me this is i mean not to be all deaf leopard about it but how you know sugar look me up i mean this isn't like that hard to figure out it's a, it's a sex song right yeah, yeah, and yeah. there's nothing else there's nothing else in his catalog that's even remotely like it. You know, right. I think he, whether he was intoxicated, whatever the circumstances were, I think he just sort of tapped this really specific vein um, and, you know, probably regretted it afterward. But the the musical backing I'm really interested in because remember at the start of the program, we were talking about how there were fewer and fewer differences between Heat Miser songs and Elliot Smith songs, the longer that the parallel career path was being pursued. And I hear this and I think like, this might've been what Elliot wanted Heat Miser to sound like in rock mode. Like he could definitely rock out and, right. he, and he did later. Like the two Elliot Smith live experiences of this moment in time were solo acoustic shows, like the one I was just describing and shows supporting this record in which quasi, so this is Sam Coombs who used to be in Heat Miser and Janet Weiss, who is the drummer in Slater Kinney, that's Quasi. Oh. So Quasi was his backing band for this entire tour. And a lot of his former acoustic songs were being reinterpreted as rock songs, which a lot of his fans didn't like. They liked the solo acoustic music, right. but he loved to rock. Like this is a guy who at karaoke would sing Scorpions with no irony at all, right? Like he, he could right. rock. But I think this is more like his version of what a rock song would sound like. So I guess it makes sense that like this weird outlier of a sex song actually has more of a rock orientation to it. Right. That's great too. You know, it's funny that, that you say that because it kind of rem- it brings me back to when you said he, he loved Dylan, such a fan of Dylan. It almost sounded like, like Dylan going electric and his, you know, folk fans being appalled by it. Sort of like the same thing, like his, his people wanted him to just play acoustic. <laughs> That's that's actually a great metaphor. That, I mean, the fact that you just – I hadn't even thought about it until you said it, but it's really true. Like you can see that weird old folky dichotomy like, like in the audiences as they would crank up the quasi-machine. Like, wow, this is re- really a different interpretation of this song. Right. And also, like I said, me not knowing him at all, I still get the th- sense that he's someone that's going to do – going to say, screw it. That's not going to you know bend over backwards to please people, and it's going to do what, what he what he wants to do. Exactly. And, and, you know, I, so, and then 
maybe regret it a little bit. Like wake up the next right, right. morning and which I guess exactly. it, it yeah. segues the next song and the song after that. But like wake up the next morning and kind of go, oh, I, I didn't mean that. So I'm going to eliminate the lyrics. So it's harder for you to follow the trail. Yes, that I he would, which is, uh, uh, you know, uh, Dylan would just lean into it and uh, love it and love to hate and, <laughs> and be happy yeah, about it. That's, exactly. that's where the difference lies. Um, all right, so 2.45 a.m., to me, this is like one of the rawest thing on here. It's just so raw, the lyrics, yeah. and there's there's no real chorus. It's just three bittersweet verses uh, that really hit hard. Uh, let's listen to 2.45 a.m. Part I just faded it out, but uh, whole I'm looking for the man that attacked me while everyone was laughing at me. Do you have any? Is this, is this anything real from a real thing, or do do you think he's just being uh, metaphorical? No, I, I think there's. I mean, you know, look again. I mean, this is the guy who said, you know, these aren't supposed to be diary entries, They're right? Just right, little right. Pictures, words, but there's a lot of autobiography in here. And so I, I mentioned earlier in the conversation that um, his stepfather, so his his mom's name was Bunny. Bunny was married to Charlie. They lived in Dallas. And Charlie was evidently a fairly difficult guy, difficult character. Uh, I think he and Elliot had a pretty strained relationship. And I gather later in life that Elliot had come to the conclusion that uh, Charlie had abused him, both physically and maybe even worse than that. Maybe there had been some other form of abuse. Yeah. And so when when I hear this song now – He's written before, there are other songs in his catalog before this record about Charlie. In fact, one called Some, Some Song actually names Charlie, circles him. It just says Charlie. So he's clearly wrestling with this idea of abuse or this idea of physical attack or this idea of beatings I've had or whatever, whatever it may be. Now, I've, you know, Elliot was not a person who, I mean, he's from Texas, so he would throw hands. Like if he were drunk, uh, and he thought that some the underdog in his friend group or whatever was like being singled out or, or attacked. I mean, you know, he would probably go after somebody and probably pay the price. He wasn't a physically big guy. But I hear this song and I when he talks about the both of you, the both of you can fade to black. To me, that's 
being very specifically targeted at Bunny and Charlie. Like, you know, oh, okay. I left Dallas behind. I left that life behind. He's still wrestling with whatever it is that took place in that house when he was a kid. And it's coming out in this specific way. There's also some Portland stuff in here, too, where uh, he talks about um, Center Circle. There's a neighborhood in, in Portland, in southeast Portland, called Lad's Edition. It's the oldest neighborhood in the city, and it's built in sort of this weird concentric circle with spokes kind of way. Center Circle is the part of the Rose Garden that's like smack dab in the middle of Lad's Edition. And we would see kids out there smoking and drinking all the time. So at 2.45 in the morning to be sort of in a bad state, thinking about bad things that happened to you once upon a time, like probably people ran into Elliot in that very place, in that very condition. You know, it seems a little more than just allegorical. Right. <laughs> okay. But happily, I think this doesn't end the record because I'd say, say yes, would you agree? Is Could you say say yes could be taken as like sort of an optimistic ending to the record? I, I not only think that it's an optimistic end to the record, I think it's the best thing he ever did, oh, period, okay. full stop. Like it is in in part because it, um, there is a hopeful aspect to it, but it's it's a story about his, the end of his relationship with Joanna Beaumet, right. uh, who I talked about before. And all of us who knew Elliot or knew Joanna a little bit, when we heard this song, we were like, oh, that's Joanna. Like, we kind of instantly knew right. what it was that he was talking about. And yeah, it's insanely optimistic, which I think was very intentional on his part. Yeah, it's not a bitter, there's not a, a, a bitterness to it at all or anything. Yeah, it is optimistic, which is, yeah, which is, which is great. And I think it's a great way to end the record. Um, let's do a little bit of Say Yes. I'm in love with the world Through the eyes of a girl Who's still around the morning great song i know i i know you had mentioned a, a lot of people do cover them i'm imagining because this is a song i could just think of some you know who, who wouldn't want to cover this song it's such a good song yeah it's it's phenomenal i mean you know again for a person who made a point of saying you know my my songs are allegories they're not like you know slices of life this is one of the few times where he would specifically say right this is about a very specific person i guess he wrote this rob in five minutes he he, he talked about this he would sit in front of the TV 
and watch kind of like trash TV, like Xena Warrior Princess or something like that with the sound off. Right. And just let his hands wander. And he's like, that's the best way for me to write. I'm not really consciously thinking about it. My hands are just sort of making changes. So I guess this song was written in about five minutes after he and Joanna had broke up. And and here you have, I mean, it literally just like delivered wholesale pretty much wow. just as you hear it on the record, which is how he delivered it live. Uh, and anybody, like you say, who's probably ever attempted it, like there'd be no reason to add any more adornment to this than right, there is. Right, it's, right, it's right, exactly. just as it is, as simple as it is. It's Yeah, it's kind of perfect just as it is and great. And uh, yeah, this was great. Corey, this was, uh, this was, like I said, it was a perfect record for you to pick through. Obviously, you have a real close connection. Now, do you, so are you in Portland still at all? Or are you still going back and forth? Or what's your deal with Portland? Uh, well, I have family in Portland. So I'm, I'm in and out of there, not anywhere near as, as frequently as I used to be. Uh, we're in Bend, Oregon a lot, which is about three hours uh, south and east oh, okay. uh, of Oregon, like yeah. uh, part of it. But yeah, I still feel... Uh, you know, a lot of connection to that community. And, uh, you know, again, I, we, we started the conversation this way. I think this is his more, his most Portland record. Uh, you know, after this, he had moved to New York, he had signed to a major. Uh, it's really where the, the fame and the contrails of fame and all that kind of take off. And, you know, I, we, we talked a little bit before about the circumstances of his passing and um, I mean, it bums me out. Right. Cause I think a lot of the complexity of his character got canceled out in the months and the years, 20 of them now that have passed, you know, since, since he passed. And so, you know, people just wanted an easy way to understand what had happened to him. And there there was no easy explanation. And so, um, you know, I've read that he was an insanely great, uh, snowboarder, for example, or a crazy good baker. He was actually entertaining (laughs) going back to culinary, culinary school at one point, like trying that. Yeah, he would run around uh, when he was still in Portland and had signed his publishing deal and had a little more money. He would leave $100 bills in the shoes of homeless people on the street for them to wake up to. Like, oh, nice. I just think there were a lot of things about his character that all got lost because the best way to understand him was somebody, you know, who was depressed and sad and had right, depressed and right, sad right, music. Right. And there was this inevitable end to him. But, um, But I would say that, like, Either or is a record of a lot of contradictions, as Elliot was, right? So, you know, I think to me, you know, he was somebody who, you know, kind of thrived on the tension between beautiful sounds telling horrible stories, right? Like intensely private, but putting your art in a very public space so that people can participate in it or take it in or whatever. And then tension kind of ensues from that, you know, somebody who could be incredibly funny and yet had obviously really dark aspects to, to who he was or sort of what he was trying to navigate uh, the longer that he lived. And so um, a friend of mine from Portland who was one of my editors a long time ago when I was writing about music called this record a candy apple with a razor blade inside. Oh, and wow. I can't think of a better way to describe this than what John Chandler described, which is exactly right. There's the sweet and the sharp all yeah. in one package. Right, right. But um, yeah, and and you know, it, it's a shame. I'm 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 sorry, you know, for for you and for everyone who knew him, you know, for his loss. But at least we have his uh, his great music to listen to, and uh, really is uh, really is something I've really enjoyed listening to it uh, all week. You know, just because just because, like I said, at the end of the day, it's just a unbelievable 
record with great songs, great playing on it. It's just, it's just, uh, it was just amazing. Well, and I think he's one of the few artists I could ever say this about Rob. Where like literally everything he ever created, the three records with Heat Miser, the seven records on his own, they're all worth owning. Right. They're right, all worth right. hearing. All worth spending time with. Um, I just happen to be biased because of the time and place of its creation that this was my favorite. But uh, to me, they're all they're all worthy. They're all terrific. The body yeah, work yeah, stands yeah. up years and years later. So, uh, so Corey, uh, real quick, I, I know we're going to, I know it's early on because it's coming, but you are working on something really exciting, uh, a book on, uh, well, tell me a little about it. I think, I think we'll, it'll work out. We'll have you on again when it's ready to come out. But, uh, what is the book, uh, that you're working on now? Well, I'd, I'd love to come back and, and do that. But, uh, well, first of all, Rob, I feel like I'm cheating a little bit because you know this because you helped contribute to it. So there's about 50 or so of my fellow rock scribes, musicians, producers uh, who helped contribute to this book. So it's called An Ideal for Living, A Celebration of the EP, and it will be out on Hozak, the uh, Chicago-based publishing imprint uh, in spring 2024. And it's about the extended play. It's about EPs. And so it collects the very subjectively created top 200 EPs ever recorded from the 50s when we first started calling them EPs up until literally last year. I think there's one disc from 2022 that made the cut. And uh, there are 200 really hilarious, interesting, sometimes sad reviews uh, with very personal stories attached to them of these little gifts that are the extended play. So uh, thank you, Rob. This is my chance to thank you for all your listeners for contributing. And, And yours was Terrific, and a subject that you know really well because Interpol was one of the EPs, and of course Sam is your friend, and you you wrote an amazing review of uh, their their very first recorded thing, the first yeah. EP that they ever put out. <laughs> um, yeah, but it's just as a whole, it's just I'm really excited for the whole thing because it's just a great idea, and it's like EPs. We all know, you know, most of we all grew up with them, but uh, it's just I was I was amazed myself when seeing. I, I had no idea that they went back that far, and that, and it's just I think it's going to be great. I'm I'm really excited for it. Thank you. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, Spoons Britt Daniel wrote the foreword. Uh, Chris Lucerenko, a guy from Portland who played in Sprinkler, which was contemporaneous with Elliot's first band, Heat Miser, but also ended up in Guided by Voices and supporting R.E.M. He wrote the afterword. And just uh, there's some fun stuff in here. You know, people that were in bands that were on the records that they were able to review. Uh, a woman I know from the University of Oregon who was actually on the first Bikini Kill EP who wrote about the first Bikini Kill EP. Oh, nice. It's phenomenal. <laughs> so uh, just the, the happy accidents that happened uh, in the creation of it have been super fun to to watch. It's, uh, I'll, you know, for the four people who read it, Rob, it'll be excellent. <laughs> no, I think it'll be a little more than that. But uh, yeah, so start thinking about start thinking about your next record now, Corey, and maybe you'll come up with one by next year when I when we, when we get to. Yeah, I was just gonna say I apologize in advance for what will happen between now and exactly, next exactly. Time. But you'll come up with something great, so it's fine. Uh, don't forget, everyone, uh, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook as at that record got me high on X. It is at TRGMH podcast. You can email me at TRGMH33 at gmail.com. Most importantly, if you want to become a patron of the show, I, you know, I was thinking I want to have like some kind of drive, like some kind of uh, a patron drive because, um, I don't know what, because people do that. So let's have, we're, we're having a patron drive now. If you, if you've been listening to this show kind of regularly and you listen to it, like it, 
think about becoming a patron. It's for as little as $2 a month. You could just become a patron and then I could say, oh, I got one more patron. That's awesome. You can go to patreon.com forward slash TRGMH and you could participate in our patron curated episodes, which Corey knows are a blast. Corey, I, I got the next one. It's coming out uh, in, in about a week. And uh, Corey is always a great contributor to it, but you don't have to contribute all the time. Become a patron, and I have some patrons, you know, take a break and they come back. But it is a lot of fun, right, Corey? Wouldn't you say it's a lot of fun? I think it's it's a blast. I can't wait for this next one to happen. And come on, you guys. I mean, if you're listening to this podcast, you have no excuse. Yeah, you have no excuse. It's almost like I used to say this. Barry used to get mad at me. I'd say it's almost like you're stealing from us. Barry say, no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> That's a little harsh, probably, but uh, I would appreciate it. Corey, thanks again. It's always great talking to you, and uh, we will talk to you again soon. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you all next week. I'm Rob Elba. We're out of here. Crushing Oh, uh-huh.